Oh, my. It's Seth Harwood back with as much protein as an egg. Episode 8. Say that five times fast. I disappeared for a while. Man, it's a pandemic. What the? It's a pandemic out here. Plus, we got racial protests in the streets. We got a need for equality. We got all kinds of things going on. So I stepped away for a minute. And now I'm back with some help from a friend, Carlos Mendoza, bringing you the chapters this week. But I'm here to talk to you a little bit at the front and the back, like always. Turns out I don't even have theme music for as much protein as an egg. Something comes on at the end, I think. I don't know. It's been that long, and I apologize. I'll talk more about this at the end. I heard some nice emails from some of you guys. Got a few farters out there. I appreciate that. Way to fart at your boy. Yeah, I'll send some shout-outs to them. Got a question from Chris Lee that I'll answer. And if you have questions, you feel free to send them in as well. But right now, it is middle of July. Things are crazy. 90 degrees today. Hanging out with the daughter and my wife, doing the things. Carlos Mendoza out there in Las Vegas where it's 100 plus every day. And he's bringing us some protein as an egg. We go back to the beginning of chapter 13 for this. I'm going to give it all to you, and then I'll come back with more to say right after. Chapter 13. Kellogg brought the bagel with eggs back to Emily's table and sat down. He was sitting right across from her. This continued to make him nervous. Usually, the more time he spent with a woman, the more he got used to her looks and the calmer he got. Not today. This was because I kept making Emily Plinko more and more beautiful. Artemis Kellogg was getting really nervous now. What he decided to do next was really quite genius. Because he was a writer, having just completed part of his story about the water polo player who got to study with Kurt Vonnegut, and feeling very confident in himself as a result, he decided to say his writerly ideas out loud to Emily Plinko. He would tell her a story. As all writers know, their ideas for stories usually show them to be smarter, cooler, and all-around better people than they actually are. This was another reason that groupies didn't flock to readings to have sex with writers anymore. Word had gotten out that meeting an actual writer in person was often a disappointment. They were always better and more interesting on the page. I have an idea for a story, Artemis Kellogg said. Do you mind if I tell it to you? Emily Plinko was immediately impressed. Knowing they were in the presence of a writer could have this effect on women who were created by writers. She sat back and breathed in a comforting breath which was something she had learned how to do in her meditation class. Suddenly, Emily Plinko became taller and even more beautiful. I swear to you, I was sitting right across the cafe from them and I saw it happen. If I hadn't seen it, I never would have believed it either. Kellogg marched on. He was like a shark, he told himself. Sharks kept moving. He had gotten an extra plate. Now he took half of the bagel and put it onto a plate for himself. He pushed the basket with the other half of Bagel across the table to Emily. He had gotten knives and forks for the both of them. Emily Plinko's laptop was no longer on the table. She had put it into her bag while Kellogg was standing at the counter. Here is one other thing that Kellogg had done at the counter. He had gotten himself some more coffee. 
caffeine and gurgles be damned. He was going to drink more coffee. This is my idea, he said. He was about to start telling Emily Plinko about his idea for the September 11th screenplay and what it showed about war and terror, the most significant experiences of a generation, he thought. Wait, Emily Plinko said. She stopped him. Then she did something really lovely. She asked Kellogg if he wanted salt and pepper on his eggs, and when he said yes, she actually salted and peppered his eggs for him. She shook out just the right amount of salt and pepper right on top of his not-melted cheddar cheese. He really thought this was quite an amazing thing for her to have done. It was lovely. He immediately felt comfortable. Let me ask you, she said, and I don't mean to be interrupting. I'm totally interested in what you have to say, but let me ask you, would this story sound better if you cast it in the future or on another planet? What? Artemis Kellogg stopped. His head shook. He was shaken. His ideas had just gone through a tumble on the heavy cycle in a dryer that was all of a sudden in his brain. Wow, he said. What? Like science fiction. She took a big bite of the sandwich and nodded right away at how good it was. The cheese was even starting to melt a little. This is good, she said. Artemis Kellogg was happy. Emily Plinko was a fan of science fiction. You can choose for yourself who are some of her favorite writers. Let this now be a Choose Your Own Favorite Writers book. While she chewed, she said, I like stories with metaphors and big ideas. Maybe you do too. When she said this, she didn't spray anything out of her mouth. She really was rather composed. Artemis Kellogg stared down at his food. He couldn't speak. Emily Plinko was becoming his muse. She had just given him his first wonderful idea. Okay, he said. Let me try it. Kellogg thought for a few long seconds, almost a full minute actually, and took a few sips of his coffee. People had come and gone in the cafe around them. It was after 11 a.m. now, which meant that no baristas would be steaming any more eggs. Not until tomorrow. Time was passing as these two were in one another's company. A good sign. Kellogg's laptop and his bag were still at the other table. He had forgotten them, but they were safe. Nobody around this cafe would steal a laptop because they knew how terrible it would feel if this happened to them. Even though they all diligently backed up their data, they knew losing a laptop could be a very traumatic experience. Okay, Kellogg said, thinking about how to tell her his whole idea for a story. And then he began to try. Kellogg asked Emily Plinko to imagine a world called Tralfamador, another planet in a galaxy far, far away. Okay, she said. I'm listening. He started to tell her about the history of Tralfamador. In the olden days on this planet, some of the different beings lived in caves. Lots of different kinds of caves. That was a long time ago, he said. Let's skip forward about 3,000 years, give or take. In the new time Kellogg told her about, he explained that there were big, terrible battles called wars. These started out with different things that the Tralfamadorians would hit each other with. What did they look like, these Tralfamadorians? Emily Plinko asked. This all happened a long time ago, back when they had arms, just like us. They were actually quite muscular at first, way back in their history. 
They had big, hairy shoulders and stood all hunched-like. Their heads were quite small. These days they've evolved a great deal. They're way, way more advanced than we are, anything that we're dealing with now. He gestured to the cafe around them, even the copies of paintings by Rabo Karabikian. Yes, they had already dealt with minimalist painting. Anything like this they dealt with a long, long time ago. They've had computers for about 5,000 years. Because they're so advanced, their bodies have evolved to look like long poles with a wide rubber base at the bottom, like a plunger. On top of this, they have a hand with a single green eye set in it. They can see in four dimensions. Wow, Emily said. She had her eyes shut. Yeah, I can picture that, but not the fourth dimension. Me neither, he said. But this that I'm telling you happened way back in the distant past of this planet, Trelfamador. He told her how they used to hit each other way back when they still lived in caves and had two arms with muscular, hairy shoulders. They killed one another and kept doing it through time with better and better weapons. Then they invented big, tremendous weapons that killed lots and lots of Trelfamadorians all at once, from very far away. It was just amazing how many of themselves they could wipe out with these new weapons. Like bombs? she said. They'll need a different name. Kellogg shrugged. We can work on that later. For now, we'll just call them aplombs. Aplombs, she said. Right. He told her about the aplombs that were so big you could see them go off from very, very far away, or you would hear about what had happened with them from other Tralfamadorians. Eventually, from everyone talking, they shared a big collective consciousness about what all the damage from these aplombs looked like. Fact was, the Tralfamadorians could talk to each other without speaking. This was one of the ways they were already starting to be more advanced than us, even back then. They could share thoughts with just their minds. Here's where the story gets interesting, he said. Emily Plinko crossed one leg over the other. I agree. Some thoughts on the planet were so big and so important that they got shared with everybody all around. I mean everybody on one part of the planet, you know? Like a given set of these beings. Maybe science fiction's just not your thing. What? He was surprised she had said that. No, no, bear with me, he said. Artemis Kellogg wasn't worried anymore. His brow had stopped sweating, and he didn't mind Emily's questions. He had it going, he would say. He was a writer. He could feel his story coming to him. Slowly, but still. Listen, he said. She did. The Trelfamadorians invented boxes they could put their thoughts into, where they could be stored and played back by anyone anywhere. This was pretty cool, until they realized they didn't share thoughts with one another anymore in person. They mostly just got new thoughts from the boxes, which were filled up with thinking by only a few powerful citizens. Some of the stuff in the boxes was really very important. Here's the problem. Soon, Everyone was just getting things from boxes and not from the walking around and shaking hands with one another. By this time, their eyes had migrated to their hands, just a part of evolution on the planet. Evolution wasn't just a theory, as it turned out. When they shook hands, it temporarily blinded the Tralfamadorians for a moment, which was a sign of trust. They liked that. Emily Plinko's brow wrinkled. She appeared to be confused. This wasn't what Kellogg had hoped to happen. Where did I lose you? He sipped his coffee, wishing he had added more sugar. His story was actually quite good. It hadn't lost Emily Plinko at all. 
It was just that Kellogg was only a fledgling storyteller and occasionally lost his confidence. Or perhaps it was an effect of the coffee. Anyway, it killed the story. The story died right there. So it goes. I had been watching Kellogg's laptop for a time now, wondering if he'd get upset or even notice if I got up and brought it back to my table. I just wanted to use it for a little while. I had realized that I should really be writing all this down. Emily Plinko said, The boxes, they sound like a clumsy metaphor for TV. It's all, well, it's just kind of yawn. Yawn was what people did when they were tired. It was actually a great way to take in more oxygen, which everyone needed, but it also happened when people were tired. No one quite knew why. Artemis Kellogg was undeterred. He could see now that Emily Plinko would be his muse. He had never thought to consider such a thing as a muse before, and probably would have decided not to believe in them if he had, but now he was convinced of this role for her and his creativity. Okay, he said. How about you try? He got up and went to his old table and retrieved his laptop, just when I had been planning to start using it. My loss. He opened it up and got ready to type. The first thing he saw was the story about the young polo player and Kurt Vonnegut. He'd get back to that one later. Now he wanted to see what his muse would say. Emily Plinko started slowly. At first, she smiled. She had been waiting for an opportunity just like this, even if she didn't know it. I want to talk about another set of extraterrestrial beings. These beings come from a planet called Yabid, she said. They have two arms and two eyes perched on top of their bodies, which look a lot like fire hydrants. They're pretty short and squat, actually. Their means of movement is to hop around. They're kind of like a cross between a fire hydrant and a pogo stick. But with arms? Yes, with arms. Artemis Kellogg was writing it all down. I was watching. Jealous. When they bounce around together, it makes it sound like plop, plop, plop. It's not a very becoming sound, but they have to get around, you know? Anyway, on this planet, their big problem is that they all look too much alike. None of them can tell the others apart, and so their relationships are all really boring. They're all the time like, Are you Bob? No, I'm Ned. Oh, Ned, sorry, I don't know you. Have you seen Bob? She did different voices for the Yabiters. It was very cute. Then one day, one of the Yabiters got the idea to put a straight donut on top of her head. It happened to fit over the top of the lug nut right on top of her. Everyone else recognized her right away. They were all like, That's Donatella! Wow, have you seen her lately? She looks great! Pretty soon, lots of other Yabiters started wearing donuts or croissants or even a few bagels here and there, now and then. One of them got the idea to paint his body a new color. They were originally all yellow, and then one of them got the idea to use red paint on his body, and that looked really cool. So the other Yabiters started to copy him and to paint their bodies. After a while of this, everyone on the planet Yabit had enough different permutations of how they painted themselves and what they wore that they could tell one another apart. They all looked different now. 
This led to a whole new varieties of relationships, long-running friendships that developed and grew, and they started to have a new sense of identity that they would talk to each other about at length when they got together. Their senses of self were growing. Their life experiences were suddenly so much richer. She nodded, paused, and looked around. Neither of them could tell that I was listening. I was really very clandestine. Emily Plinko could see that Kellogg was typing it all down madly. This made her very pleased. Then a funny thing happened. A whole bunch of yabbiters from a faraway land showed up one day, and they all had three arms and looked more like pretzels than fire hydrants. All the fire hydrant yabbiters had their minds blown. They couldn't believe how different these new ones looked. Sure, all of them looked exactly alike to the hydrant people, but boy, were they different from them. Emily Plinko sat back in her chair with a satisfied look on her face. She took the last bite of her eggs with cheese on poppy seed bagel and wiped her mouth while she chewed. When it was safe to speak, she asked Kellogg if he was going to finish his eggs. Need your protein, she said. He was typing, typing, typing on his laptop. The idea of the yabbiters had captured him. He thought for a moment that maybe instead of writing his own stories in the script about September 11th, that he could make magazines and publish the stories of Emily Plinko. Then he decided against that. It really wasn't his style. Still, he kept typing her story about the yabbiters. When he had it down, he said, What does that mean? She smiled. I don't know. I'm not sure. He nodded, felt his cheeks get warm. Exactly he said. Exactly. So you'll recall from the beginning that this isn't actually the writer Seth Harwood. It is Phil Boyd Studge Third as the eye narrator in this whole thing. You know, you got Artemis Kellogg, Bainbridge McGee, all kinds of stuff going on. But your boy Seth Harwood, nowhere to be found, as always, just like you like it. So here's Carlos Mendoza, more of him. Thanks to Carlos for coming on and giving us this uh, reading. Yes, this is how we get the content out, because it's good to get the content out. And Carlos said it was okay to call him Carlito Mendiza, but I won't do that. This is my man, Carlos Mendoza. All right, chapter 14. You want the funk? Well, if I give you the funk, you're going to take it. We want the funk. Chapter 14. Let's get back to our friend in La Quinta, that man down south in the heat of the desert, the famous writer, Bainbridge McGee. We've been away from La Quinta for too long, perhaps. In his life, a few months had passed. It was now slightly cooler outside on the links in the morning when he golfed. It was 2014 already. February, to be exact. He had rolled in the new year by making great headway into his next masterpiece, which he called The Falling People. He wouldn't talk about it yet to anyone because he was superstitious, but he called it this to himself. He had a good hundred pages of the book. This one, he thought, would cement his reputation and earn him a Grand Master Award down the road one day. He had met the other members of this year's Damon Knight Award Committee and talked to them a few times using a website on his computer that allowed them all to see each other's faces and hear each other talk at the same time. 
Hardly anybody listened when they did this, but everyone sure talked. A couple really good things happened to him since he started writing The Falling People. First, he had met a woman at the nest who was not a cougar in the sense that she was looking for a relationship of just sex with a much younger man. Her name was Sandy, and she was a cougar in the sense that she was divorced and confident and had money. She was looking for an older, more distinguished man who liked to take long walks and watch sunsets. This last part about the walks and the sunsets was actually what she wrote on her Match.com profile. Good thing Bainbridge McGee never saw that. He would have steered clear like a maniac on the highway trying to steer away from an imaginary skunk. Instead, McGee met her in person at the nest when she accidentally, on purpose, spilled her martini on his pants. She dabbed it off with a black cloth napkin, and when she did, Bainbridge McGee felt a light pressure on his penis. After that, he was fascinated by everything she said. He was enthralled by her, in fact. His programming was really very simple that way. Believe it or not, they were still dating nearly three months later. This was a long relationship for McGee. Big Wynn thought Sandy was hot. He said so to McGee right in front of her the first time they met. He said, Damn, McGee, this one is hot. Since he met Sandy, which was in January, Big Wynn had masturbated to fantasies of her exactly three times. The other good thing that had happened to McGee was this. He had been successful, so far, he thought, at introducing the idea of giving this year's Grand Master Award to Kurt Vonnegut. The committee seemed like they were open to the idea. There would be a vote, and McGee thought it might go his way. In fact, Bainbridge McGee estimated that he had about a 67% chance of the vote going for Kurt Vonnegut. This made him happy. The only downside to his chances was one other member of the six-person committee. His name was Aldo Calcagno, and he maintained that it made no sense to award the Grand Master Award to someone posthumously. Posthumously meant after that person was dead. So it goes. Calcagno's grounds were that the funding from the award would have no benefit for a dead person. So it goes. The idea of the Damon Knight, he maintained, was to take a notable Grand Master and give him the ability to focus only on his most important work, his writing, or whatever the hell else he or she really wanted to do, for the remainder of his or her days, or at least until the money ran out. The amount of money given for the Damon Knight Memorial Grand Master Award was $250,000. McGee was unimpressed with this sum. He knew a writer not even that good of a writer, truth be told, who had gotten that promise to him just for one book. And when that book came out, it was a stinker. It flopped. This happened all the time, in fact. People got paid a lot of money for writing a book, and then that book came out, and it was a stinker. McGee's suggestion was to designate that this year's award money go to a charity to help young writers get on their feet and do some actual writing. Two of the other members on the committee thought this was a great idea. That left two members undecided. In three weeks, the whole committee was flying to San Francisco to meet in person. There they would decide once and for all on whom to give the award. The three finalists they had narrowed it down to were 1. Kurt Vonnegut, 2. Laszlo Zoltan Nagy, and 3. Beatrice Kiedzler, the Gothic novelist. The arguments for Vonnegut were obvious. He was awesome! Slaughterhouse-Five was the number 18 best novel of the 20th century as ranked by Modern Library. Come on! 
This was just the tip of the Vonnegut iceberg. The argument for Nagy was simple. Too many Grand Master Awards had gone to Americans. They had to broaden the field and give it to an international writer or two, according to Calcagno. Nagy was Hungarian. This was the kind of thinking that Brainbridge McGee hated. When you did something because you thought you might get in trouble down the road if you didn't do it. But you really had no idea if anyone would care or not, or get you in trouble either way. He called this preventative bullshit. McGee favored what he called the direct approach, which meant to do what the hell you thought was best, and if someone had a problem with it, then you dealt with that later. Let them come tell you they had a problem, then you would give a shit. Bainbridge McGee really hated preventative bullshit. When he thought about the committee approaching things this way, it made him yell out, FUCK! He didn't yell out, FUCK! all that often, but sometimes it had to be said. Yes, it did. Fuck yes. Laszlo Zoltan Nagy was from Hungary, which McGee thought was almost as funny as someone being from Turkey. What could you do about that? Put them together and have a Thanksgiving, he guessed. No one else thought this was funny. Not even Sandy. Here were two other things McGee thought were funny. Laszlo Zoltan Nagy had been born in a place called Shekes Fahervar. Who the hell could say that? Go ahead. Try and see if you can. See? Also, Nagy's middle name was Zoltan. You couldn't get much funnier than that, McGee thought. It made him think of the movie Flash Gordon, which is one of his all-time favorites. Flash! McGee liked to sing. Ah! Savior of the universe! Flash! Ah! He'll save every one of us! Flash! Ah! He's a miracle! McGee did not like Nagy for the award because he was A, too young, and B, still devoting a lot of his life to playing professional handball in the EHF Champions League, rather than just writing. Who the hell cared about handball? That McGee himself devoted a great deal of his life to golf, and still considered himself a worthy candidate for the Grand Master Award, had not yet occurred to him. It never would. The fact was, Nagy had written three incredibly marvelous books, earth-shatterers, really, in a short amount of time, even while he was successfully playing handball at the highest level. Go figure. The best of his books was called The World According to Laszlo Zoltan Nagy. It was a work of fiction. Modern Library currently had it ranked as the number 63 best English-language novel of the 21st century, and it wasn't even originally in English. They were actually ranking a very mediocre translation. In the category of Hungarian language novels, Modern Library had Nagy's book ranked number one, but there were still 86 years to go in the 21st century for someone to write one better. As for the last finalist, Beatrice Kiedzler, well, for starters, she was a gothic novelist. Just look at all the high school girls out there wearing baggy black clothing, powdering their faces white and wearing dark eyeliner. Look at Marilyn Manson. Look at the Twilight series, Robert Pattinson and Team Edward versus Team Jacob. Keedsler had effectively spawned all of that. Where would any of these be without gothic novels? Of course, McGee didn't think any of these were good developments. In this, he was largely alone. He thought the world, or at least America, would be better off without Marilyn Manson, Twilight, and high school girls with powdery white faces and black clothing. 
Okay, maybe he wasn't so alone in thinking this. He actually had a lot of company. But you had to give Kiesler a lot of credit for getting in on the ground floor of all this stuff. That's what the committee said, anyway. The committee was effectively thinking about literally giving her a lot of credit for this. McGee was against it. In McGee's estimation, Kiesler had only a 10% chance of winning the award. Nagy had a 20% chance. That left a 3% gap in everyone's chances. This was McGee's calculated margin of error. Today, McGee was taking the day off from golf to write. He was at a crux point in his novel. The falling people were falling. Others on the ground were running to get out of their way. Reporters had scattered. Everyone was horrified. The main character of McGee's book, Billy Pilgrim, had jumped through time to land in Brooklyn, New York on September 11, 2001, and had been watching the events transpire on television. He was horrified. Billy Pilgrim was generally horrified a lot of the time. He couldn't believe that somehow he had hopped in time again and wound up here, on a beige couch in Park Slope, Brooklyn, watching something happen on television. Of course, he couldn't not believe it either. These things happened. Nothing he could do about them. So it went. On the television, he saw the towers burning and was immediately reminded of the horrors of the Dresden firebombing and what he'd seen. Being in Dresden in February 1945 was something he would never forget. How could he? He had come unstuck in time and kept experiencing it over and over again in time. The events on the television were something he was just starting to get his head around. He thought more than likely he would get over it. After all, it was only on television. What he witnessed in Dresden felt worse. Way worse. That was an entire city and its whole population destroyed. Listen, the total number of people killed in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania on September 11, 2001, was 2,996. Although accounts of the number killed in the firebombing of Dresden vary widely, Wikipedia puts the number around 25,000, roughly eight times as many as on September 11, 2001. Slaughterhouse 5 places the number killed by British and U.S. bombers at 135,000 people killed. Insert note. Slaughterhouse, page 240. Roughly five and a half times that many, or 45 times as many as September 11th. So it goes. What Billy Pilgrim was first amazed by in Brooklyn was the size of the television. It was huge, and its picture so clear. It was also very flat on the sides. His old television back in Ilium had been the size of a cut-in-half refrigerator box and just as deep. He turned to his side and saw an old very rotund white woman sitting next to him on the couch. She wore an off-white house dress. It may have been white at some point in time, but now it was off-white, to say the least. In her lap, she held a bag of something called Doritos. She was weeping. "'How did this happen?' Billy asked. The old woman did not appear to notice that Billy Pilgrim had just appeared here from the past. Her response was this. I have no freaking idea. What she meant was that she could not fathom how someone would possibly pilot a giant aircraft into one of the World Trade Center towers, much less two aircrafts into both of them. At the point where Billy Pilgrim had arrived in time, both skyscrapers were on fire and smoking heavily. No planes were anywhere to be seen. The old woman did not understand Billy's question. 
He meant to ask her how he had arrived here. Even if she did understand, however, her response would have been exactly the same. By some misunderstanding, Billy Pilgrim thought she knew exactly what he meant. He didn't bat an eyelash. Fact is, he knew more about his own time travel than she ever would. Billy Pilgrim thought about Dresden as he watched the smoke pour out of these strange, giant towers on this strange, giant television. And Dresden was the last time he had seen so much smoke. Do something, the woman on the couch said. What can we do? he asked. Since this was Billy Pilgrim, basically a coward and not much of a hero, he wasn't inclined to do much about the situation. He was actually thinking about the bag of Doritos. On the other hand, he was only in a living room, not a converted slaughterhouse or a meat locker or a zoo, so things were on balance pretty normal by comparison. Billy knew that whatever he was doing was what would be and what was supposed to be. There was no changing the thing. This woman was telling him to act, so he would act. He got up off the couch. This was a minor revelation for Billy. "'What can we do?' the woman asked. "'Do!' She asked this like it was the craziest question on earth. "'Look at that!' On the television, the words terrorist attack were prominently displayed. Billy didn't know what that meant. He had seen plenty of terrors in his time. But what did it mean to be a terrorist? Was this someone who traded in terror? What an awful thing, Billy thought, to want to be one day. Billy said, what should I do? Go upstairs, the woman said. See what you can see from the roof. Yes, thank you. Billy Pilgrim walked through the apartment. He somehow knew that he was in Brooklyn. Don't ask how. Bainbridge McGee just made it that way. Actually, I made him make it that way, but if we get too far into that kind of stuff, all our heads will hurt. Billy found the door of the apartment and went out into the stairwell. Oh, man. Aldo Calcagno. Don't you guys remember Aldo Calcagno? He was the editor of Crime Wave. Everybody remembers Aldo Calcagno, not Calcagno. But we love Carlos. Thank you, Carlos, for reading that. Shit, that was so much more fun to listen to than to record. I actually laughed at the masturbation jokes. Fucking A. Great stuff. Thanks, Carlos. You guys can find Carlos on Facebook, at his website. No website yet, but he has an email address that I'll give you if you want to get in touch with Carlos. And I'm going to put a couple of links in the notes to books that he has narrated that are out there on Audible. Fade to Black by Joshua Pryor and The Keeper's Crown by Nathan D. Maki. You know, like Tekamaki, like sushi. Anyway... That was a shit ton of fun to listen to. I'm glad that Carlos recorded that. Thank you, Carlos. Um, just for the record, the place that Laszlo Zoltan Negi is from is spelled S-Z-E-K-E-S-F-E-H-E-R-V-A-R. If you think you can do a better job of pronouncing that than my friend Carlos, please go ahead and give it a try. You can get in touch with me through my website, SethHarwood.com, or I'm SethHarwood at gmail.com. Carlos's email address, shit, I'll just go say it. It's Carlos Mendoza, ZZZ, at gmail.com. Whatever. There you go. Feel free to hit us up. 
I want to send some shout-outs to some of the guys who sent me fart messages. First of all, thanks to David Dzwirek. Dzwirek. Dzwibek. Thanks, man. What up and way to holler all the way from Israel. Asher Samuels throwing it down. Thank you. Paul Rogolinsky Pinter. Gomyo, the hoodie monk. Tim Tharp. Awesome. Love it. Big fan. Tim Tharp. Great. Let's see. Brian Latecki. Thank you. Joe Sear. Thank you. Chris Pragman. Way to get back in the game. I haven't heard from Chris in a while. So that's awesome. Uh, And that's most of the crew that I got farts from. If you want to send an email to your boy, just drop me a line. Subject line blank. Interior of the email. Just put the word fart. That's how you fart at me. That's going to be our new way of saying hello to each other. What could be better? Oh, my God. It's great. Um, I got a question from Chris Lee. Chris Lee, actually, Ken from Honolulu, writes that he really liked In Broad Daylight. Are you ever going to bring back Jess Harding? I haven't had time to read any of your other stuff. Plus, I've been reluctant for fear of excessive profanity. Man, I'm not bringing back Jess Harding, not anytime soon. But uh, there's another book that came out, which is called Everyone Pays, and that has a female San Francisco police officer named Clara Donner. And that one is almost completely scrubbed clean of swearing. And it's available on Audible and at Kindle. And this is the one book that I didn't narrate, the Audible version. So I don't have any free podcast of that that I can give out. Ken also says that he's enjoying as much protein as an egg, and he writes to entertain himself. Sometimes he changes up the genre just for fun to try something different. He was wondering if that was what I was doing with as much protein as an egg. Well, I love Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, I used to read him a lot, and I like the sense of humor. The humor in um, as much protein as an egg is definitely mine. You'll also find some humor in the Maltese Jordans which will be coming free to podcast as well relatively soon. But um, no, I, I think I, I thought I told this story earlier about how Amazon started doing uh, Kindle Worlds and somehow they got a hold of Vonnegut, the rights to the Vonnegut stuff, and they wanted to do Vonnegut World. And so I met this editor from Amazon who said they would pay me to write a book in Vonnegut World. And they had no clue what it meant to write a book in Vonnegut World. So I wrote as much protein as an egg, and I actually got paid for it, and I had a super ton of fun writing it while I was writing. Um, Drank a lot of coffee, as you might guess, and I was cranking out the words and knowing, oh man, I'm going to get paid for all these words I just put down. The final version of the story is shorter than this one. Uh, It got cut by about 20,000 words, which was a good, basically a third of it. Uh, so I'm giving you guys the longer version, which is a little more wild, and the print version of the shorter version is available on Amazon. Is that confusing enough? Pretty soon I want to get out the ebook version and the print version of something that is the best version of as much protein as an egg, but I haven't been working on as much protein as an egg or finding the best version because I haven't excuse me, I haven't had the time. 
and that's really the truth of it. One of the things that I've found during COVID is that the circle of things that I can care about and be a part of and have as a part of my life has narrowed quite a bit. Maybe I used to have a, a circle that was like a eight inch diameter. If you're holding your hands eight inches apart, there was like a circle there of stuff that I had going on in my life, different ways that I was working, showing up to places, exercising, leaving the house, shopping, all kinds of different things, even buying sneakers. Uh, and then at the beginning of Corona, I, I felt like it was important to podcast and start getting the word out. Um, and so I got back into it and gradually over time through COVID, my circle of things that I can care about has gotten down to about four inches in diameter. And actually there's something that feels really good and healthy about that. I feel like I've been taking care of myself better. Um, I've been more engaged and in touch with my body. Um, I've started doing some writing in the mornings, a little bit of journaling, and I wrote a poem the other day. Uh, I finally started processing some of my craft videos about writing into really short ones that you'll see here on my website and on Patreon. Um, and my wife and my daughter. Uh, my daughter's been home. My wife has been home. None of us are working outside of the house. And it's great to get outside and it's just, you know, it's been really nice to get more connected with the folks who are here with me and who I really care about and love. So we're a tighter little unit, and I am keeping it as a tighter project of things that I'm focusing on. And I've been meaning to say to you guys that this is why I haven't gotten anything out. And honestly, I couldn't even get that done. But I felt bad about not getting back to you or at about or about abandoning as much protein as an egg. So I'm really happy that Carlos has come along to do the reading for me. Uh, it means that I don't have to think about putting as much time in when I do an episode. It feels a lot easier to me. And it means that I can enjoy listening to Carlos read the chapters because that's pretty funny. It's been about six years since I wrote this one. So, uh, it feels good. It's been a ways. So it feels like writing again, especially when someone else is reading it. In any case, uh, I appreciate you listening. I thank you very much for your support on Patreon and elsewhere. Feel free to drop me an email. If you have any questions like Ken from Honolulu, um, please do write in and talk to me. If you want to send an audio of yourself asking questions or talking, you can do that as well. Send an MP3, whatever you want. Send a link. Anyway, it's great if you can like this on, like my author page on Facebook, facebook.com slash author Seth Harwood. Uh, give a five-star review on iTunes. Um, and go find this book on Amazon and review it with 10,000 stars. I lost all the stars and all the reviews because the ebook went away and I didn't have the print book ready in time. So anyway, whatever. Uh, really appreciate you listening. 
Hope you're doing well. I'd love to hear from you how you're doing with the pandemic. Here in the United States, we have absolutely fucked the pooch, as I'm sure you realize. We're fucked. School in the fall is going to be a mess if it happens at all. And racial equity is a necessity in this country that might involve reparations. I don't know what is going to happen, but I'm ready to step back as a white man in all of this. And I'm ready to step up and support the people who are protesting, the people who want equity, equality, fair treatment by the police, so many things. I'm ready to be a supporter of that protest. So wherever you are, I hope you're doing well. I send you my best, and hopefully I'll be back soon. Shouldn't be more than two weeks, week or two. All right. Take care. Be well. Good night. This is a presentation from your boy, Seth Harwood. That's right. S-E-T-H-H-A-R-W-O-O-D. Coming to you here from Massachusetts, East Hampton, during the Corona COVID 2020. That's right, your boy, kicking it to you live and direct, fresh off the mic. SethHarwood.com, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. Patreon, all the places. Check it out, keep it locked. You're listening to Seth Harwood. Subscribe today at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. What if Michael Jordan played one secret pickup game in summer 1996 to pay off a debt so big it would get him banned from the NBA for life? What if that game was played on a private court in Malta and Jordan's parting gift for the king was a jewel-encrusted pair of Jordan 11s, a pair of kicks so special and rare that they could be worth millions if they actually exist? Follow Jack Palms on a hunt from San Francisco to Hawaii and back across the country to New York City as he tracks the only person who knows the truth about these sneakers, a felon who just skipped his bond to chase them, the mythical pair of sneakers that can only go by one name. In the vein of Elmore Leonard and Carl Hyacin, Seth Harwood presents his next novel, The Maltese Jordans. Subscribe today at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. Yeah, about to give you what you need, yo. Check it out now. It's the type cerebral.